0: I know what you're thinking, why didn't we just start with that? (laughs) It would have been faster and easier to understand. Well, we are coming to our last study in the book of Job, and that, by the way, is from our children's ministry department. That is part of the curriculum they've been studying. They've actually been going through the book of Job, as we have been going through the book of Job, apparently at a much faster pace. When we think about... Job, we come to the end of the book realizing this, Job doesn't get answers. But he gets something even better. I think it's helpful for us to see the very last words that uh, Job gave, the last words of his last speech, because there's something pretty amazing in this declaration This is his ninth speech, by the way. He's had the debate going on with those three so-called friends, back and forth, nothing really gained, a lot of hot air. In fact, that's exactly what the Hebrew text says. They blamed each other for being nothing but a bunch of hot air. And now this is the last part of Job's uh, last speech. He said, "If, if only someone would listen to me which is what we often say, right? (laughs) You're not hearing me, listen to me. I now sign my defense, that is Job is saying the defense rests, I'm willing to uh, sign my name to this final message. Let the Almighty accuse me or answer me. Let the Almighty, my accuser, put his indictment, his charges into writing. I think it would be extremely helpful if you and I would know the tone of of voice and the attitude from which some portions of scripture were written. And I think this one probably is the attitude of someone frustrated who's come to the end of the line and is a bit demanding. God, answer me. I want answers. Put your charges into writing. I've put mine into writing. And then he goes on to say, if you would only come and have a conversation with me, I will tell you exactly what I've done. No holes barred. My integrity and honesty will be clear to you. I would come before you like a prince. Now that is a very interesting statement. And the way I read it is this. I will come in my dignity, I will come with my head held high. There's no reason for me to be ashamed. I'll walk into your presence, and I'll tell you everything. If only, God, you would give me a hearing. In other words, there's a bit of attitude there. Then we come to Elihu's response, which is is what we looked at last week. And just to remind ourselves, here are a few of the key things that he said. Hearing Job's response, and he had listened to all the debates, Elihu said, look, God is greater than we can understand. His years cannot be counted. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds and how he thunders from his pavilion? Now we've jumped to chapter 36, and if you were here last week, you might remember that in about the middle of chapter 36, while Elihu is speaking, it's very possible that it begins to rain. There is the mention of the drops. This is 36, verse 27. He draws up the water. And then in verse 28, he pours down the water in abundant showers. He's talking about the evaporation cycle. He's talking about these normal things that go on that actually God is in control of. So who can understand how he spreads out the clouds and how he thunders from his pavilion? Look at this in verse 31. This is the way he governs the nations. How does God govern the nations? By weather one of the things, and this is also the way that he provides food in abundance for the world. So weather has a justice side to it, think of floods and hurricanes and famine, and weather has, of course, the abundance side to it where God provides for everyone everywhere in the world. Now, not everyone who receives the justice of bad weather deserves it, just like Job doesn't deserve the punishment that he is receiving. But that's all part of this plan that we have got to understand. How about this one? He fills his hand with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. Do you ever think that lightning was random? It's not. It's intentional sent by almighty God and it strikes its mark. In chapter 37, God's voice is glorious in the thunder. We can't even imagine the greatness of his power. And here's this theme that continues to come through the teaching of Elihu. We can't understand how great God is. We cannot even imagine the greatness of his power. Whatever you imagine about God, you're not even close. And if you could multiply your understanding and appreciation for God's greatness, I say to you again, you better than you were, but not even close. He's the one who brings the clouds to punish men. Weather brings justice. Or to water the earth and demonstrate his love. So there's the provision of love, there's the punishment of, crim- of crimes, of sin, and God uses the weather. In other words, God is amazing. He is awesome in majesty. The way He controls all this world that He has created. And Elihu ends his speech with this: you cannot imagine the power of the Almighty. You said that before. Why does someone repeat something? They're getting old. Well, that's not the reason here. The reason here is for emphasis and for clarity. It's line upon line and precept upon precept. God emphasizes the fact through this speech that we cannot even imagine how powerful God is. And even though he's just and righteous, he doesn't abuse this power and he doesn't oppress. That was one of Job's complaints. God is my enemy. He's put a target on my back. He's shooting his arrows toward me. He's oppressing me and he won't answer me and I've done nothing wrong. I'm innocent. And so Elihu simply says, don't you realize that God is bigger than you think or even imagine? Imagine. Wow, if we could get that from the study of the book of Job. In fact, you cannot understand rightly what you should understand from the book of Job unless you get this. God is bigger than you think. No wonder people everywhere fear him. What is it to fear him? To revere him. The wise show him reverence. Dost thou fear God? It's a great question. In uh, the book of Romans, there's a quotation from the Old Testament that says the wicked, there's no fear of God before their eyes. How, How could you define an unbeliever? There is no fear of God before their eyes. How do you define a believer? They fear God and act accordingly. So this is a great concept, and it's not the terror that drives us away, it's the awesomeness, the word we've already seen, that draws us in. It's the respect, and the admiration, and the desire of surrender and devotion because he is so great. So the four messages of Elihu basically have this same theme, God is bigger than you think. Now, coming to chapter 38, and I hope you follow along in your Bibles as we're going to be jumping in and out. This is when God speaks. God begins to speak in chapter 38, and notice, The Lord answered Job out of the storm. Again, I don't know how this happened, but if it's possible that rain was beginning to come down and Elihu's last thoughts are dealing with the clouds and rain and lightning and how God controls the weather, maybe it's at this point that the water, the the heavens just let loose with a shower, a deluge, and thunder begins to be as loud as it's ever been and God speaks. Hey, this has happened before. It happened when Moses was on Mount Sinai and he spoke to God and there was thunder and lightning. It happened to Ezekiel when he saw the images of God and the holy temple, there was thunder and lightning. There's something awesome about that. And when we are in an awesome thunderstorm, don't we feel rather insignificant? You're looking for cover. (laughs) And here God begins to speak out of the storm. By the way, this is going to be repeated in chapter 40. So while God is talking, the storm is coming down. And what awesome effect. So this is what the Lord says. Who is this that darkens my counsel? I don't know how to do the voice of God, but think of something awesome. (laughs) Perfect diction. Who speaks words without knowledge? He's referring to Job. We know this is Job because at the end of God's speech, Job says, this is me. I'm the one who darkens your counsel. What does it mean to darken someone's counsel? You obscure it. You confuse it. You... Muddy it up so that it's not clear. Instead of being bright and understandable, now it is difficult to discern. You've complicated the matters, and there are some who preach God's word who do a great job at making clear things complicated. It's a gift. <laughs> the things of God that all of us should understand are sometimes taken Uh, through the mind of a theologian to the place where no one can understand them, including the theologian himself. Uh, H.A. Ironside, one of those great pastors, pastor of Moody Church years ago, had the enviable uh, moniker placed on him that he was the man who could make complex things simple. But here Job is complicating the matter. You're speaking words without knowing what you're saying. Brace yourself like a man, Job. You want me to answer your questions? I'm gonna question you and you're gonna answer me. That's an amazing switch. Job now, chapter after chapter, is saying, God, I want answers. When are you gonna speak? Where are you? How come you don't show yourself? It's time for you to come down. I've laid, I finished my defense. Now you tell me what the charges are. I'm waiting. Come on. God says, brace yourself, Job. <laughs> I'm gonna ask you a few questions. Yeah, he does. I, I counted about 88 questions. Now that may be off a little bit because sometimes he asks the same question twice in a slightly different way which is a very characteristic of Hebrew uh, literature and poetry where you have a couplet. The second line says the same thing as the first or complements uh, the first line and so you've got a lot of that going on. But now it's time for God to speak. Look at some of these and we'll not read all 88. But he says in verse four, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Come on, tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? And so he begins to talk about the formation of creation with and sarcasm. He systematically dismantles Job's self-confidence. He bombards him with a series of questions about creation. Verse 12, have you ever given orders to the morning sun or shown the dawn its place? Verse 16, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? On and on he goes, have you dealt with the constellations in the sky? Job, do you know the laws of heaven? Verse 33, do you teach the animals how to hunt? When you get into chapter 39, he begins to ask Job questions, not just about the formation of creation, but the management of creation. And he mentions all kinds of animals, mountain goats, deer, bear, donkeys, ox, ostrich. He has a lot of fun with the ostrich in chapter uh, 39, verse 13. The guy's got wings, flaps joyfully, but he can't fly. He's kind of dumb, (laughs) and he was made that way talks about birds, horse, hawk, the eagle. Amazing poetry, beautiful poetry. Question after question after question. And Job doesn't even have a chance to answer until we get to chapter 40 and God says, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him accuse God, answer him. And now Job has the first chance to respond And this is chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I even reply to you? I'm insignificant. I don't have the status. I, I can't play in this league. You're well beyond me. And he probably learned that with the first five questions, but God just kept questioning him. One after the other. He says, I am unworthy, so I put my hand to my mouth. I can't even speak. I spoke once before, but now I have no answer. Twice, but I'll be silent from here on out. And as one theologian said it, God quickly reduces Job to quivering mush. (laughs) Job has nothing left to say. So God has done, right? Wrong. He's only done about 60 questions and he's got maybe another 20 questions to go. And so what does he say? He says the same thing as he did at the beginning of chapter 38. The Lord spoke to Job again out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. You think you're gonna question me, I'm gonna question you. And you will give me an answer, Job. And on he goes with a series of questions. In chapter 40, he talks about, in verse 15, the behemoth, as it's translated in the NIV. Some people think that he's probably talking about the hippopotamus, but we're not exactly sure. It's, uh, it's the Hebrew transliteration of the word superbeast. I kind of like super beast better than behemoth. But the idea is now God is talking about some of the largest creatures he's made. And Job, since you didn't create all things and you can't manage creation, how about if you just handle some of my bigger creatures? And Job has got to admit he can't even do that. So when you get into chapter 41, it's Leviathan, which in some places is understood as a mythical creature, but some theologians believe he's talking about the crocodile. Except when you get down later on in chapter 41, verse 18, it sounds like he's talking about a dragon who speaks and fire comes out. But remember, this is poetry. And he might just be speaking about uh, uh, some beast we don't even know about. Some people might even think of the concept, concept of, of a large animal that somehow made it uh, through all of uh, the times of God's punishment on earth. We don't know, but the whole point is here are a couple of big creatures. Crocodile, hippopotamus, whatever it might be. Can you handle these? Can you tame these? And the answer is no. And after some 80 plus questions, we now come to chapter 42. And then Job replied to the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And no plan of yours will be When we come to this place, this is Job's confession of faith. This is the acknowledgement that God is great, without limitations. And the word plan is counsel. That is your will, your determined strategy. Your agenda cannot be thwarted. And that is true. And here's where you and I need to understand in the context of the will of God, you've got the determined will of God, or sometimes we talk about the sovereign will of God, the decreed will of God, and then you've got the permissive will of God. So God has a plan. Some things he says, these are going to be done and will not, no one will thwart them. And other aspects of the will of God, he puts out there and men disobey. You think about the revealed will of God in scripture, the 10 commandments, that's the revealed will of God but people disobey it all the time. But then when God says I'm gonna send my son and he's gonna save humanity, he says this will happen and no one will stop my hand, no one will thwart my plan. And all of it in the end is God's will, whether intentional by him or allowed, with reference to sinful consequences. Job now knows that God can do everything. Is that in your theology? God is bigger than you think, and God can do all that he wants to do. Put that next to your problem. No plan of his is ever thwarted. Job says, you asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge, my plan? Job says, I'm the guy. You asked this back in chapter 38. And now after all the questioning, Job has to say, surely I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. And it's the mystery part of it that you and I need to grasp. If God is bigger than we can think, there has to be a lot of mystery between God way up here and us way down here. And that ministry we can begin to approach but we cannot penetrate. If you and I could know the mystery of God, we'd have to be God, right? Now, sometimes he reveals mysteries to us, and they're revealed in Scripture. But nonetheless, we cannot get through the mystery between us and God so that we might truly understand who God is. And the Lord mercifully relieves Job of trying. Blessed will you be when you recognize that God is greater than you. There's a ton of mystery between you and God, and you better stop trying to figure it all out. Now, I'm okay with figuring it all out as long as you can come to the end of that time of trying to figure and say, you know what, God is God and I'm not, and I'm good with that. Our problem is we try to figure it out and we can't, so we're upset, and then we keep figuring it out and we can't, so we get upset, and God's the one we blame for it. Until we're absolutely clear that God is God and we are not, we'll be forever clamoring for him to explain himself. Explain yourself to me. (laughs) Who are you again? That you would demand from God such explanations. By the way, did you notice that God didn't give Job any explanations? What did he give him? He gave him a revelation of himself. Because what you need more than explanations, are you, you need a clear revelation of God. And that's what he just gave Job. If God will not explain himself to us, if he chooses to remain silent, we often conclude he's incompetent. Or or maybe we say he is malevolent. Or maybe he's a God that's simply uncaring. Maybe he's on a trip, he's absent. Or maybe he doesn't even exist. Have you ever thought that? When your prayers aren't answered and God is silent? How about this one? God is so big, he doesn't doesn't have to answer you. Who are you? You say, I'm his child and I'm redeemed by his grace. Yes, and that's pure mercy. And sometimes in mercy, he holds back what we don't need humility says God is God he's creator I'm a creature he's the king I'm a subject he's the master I am a servant and I don't demand from him Job went on to say you said listen and I will speak I will question you and you will answer me well here's my answer My ears had heard of you before, but now my eyes see you. Revelation. And I despise myself and repent. Now, despise myself doesn't mean self loathing and hatred. It simply means that he's ashamed that he actually came into the presence of God and thought he could go toe to toe with God. He's ashamed to think that he could come before the Lord and make such demands. The book of Job teaches us that there are several attitudes that we need to have toward God in the midst of our trials or in the midst of our suffering. Let me mention three. Number one, Job's attitude of self-pity or self-defense is what happens when we get into times of suffering. And that should be clearly rejected as God has just rebuked Job. A second set of attitudes might be what we would call self-accusation or self-incrimination. That's what the three comforters were doing. Blame yourself. Job defended himself. They said, blame yourself. But how about this one? Self-surrender. Know yourself in light of the person of God. That's what the book of Job tells us. See God. And then a lot of your questions won't make any sense, or there'll be no need for you to answer them. There's a great temptation in the midst of suffering that we let our pain become our whole world, and we began to think, that's all there is to this world is my pain, and that's all there ever will be. But God broke through Job's pain, as brutal as it was, and said, look at me. I'm greater than you think. My plan can't be thwarted. And you will be vindicated. You've got to trust me, even when you don't have all the answers. And so in the end, Job is comforted. We'll have to skip over verse seven and following. The friends are rebuked by the Lord because they did not speak the truth like my servant Job did. So Job said a lot of things that were true. He just had the wrong attitude and that's what God had to correct. Job didn't have to repent for his sin that brought on punishment because that didn't happen. But Job was ashamed and repented of his selfishness And the fact that he thought he could correct God. So God said, Job, you pray for your three friends. And if you don't, they're they're toast. But if you pray, I'll forgive. And Job, here's a great lesson for us. Job prayed for the people who attacked him. And he was blessed. Job prayed for his friends. And then the Lord made him prosperous again. That's verse 10. And then all the brothers and sisters that left him, verse 11, came to eat with him. So he had a whole big family that had left him. And when they came, notice verse 11 on the screen, they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble, what does it say? That the Lord brought. This sounds exactly like chapter 1. The Lord takes away. Shall we not receive trouble from the hand of the Lord as well as good? But look at the next verse. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life better or greater than the first. This this takes us right back to chapter 1. This is, in a literary sense, the inclusio. It's the bookends of the whole message that God gives and God takes away. And he's in sovereign control. The Lord can bring about the trouble and the Lord can bestow the blessing. And the second part of Job's life was even greater than the first. He was blessed with double, double the animals he had. When you count the kids, there's only 10 kids. But someone said, well, he's got 10 with God and now 10 new ones. So maybe that's the double. And some people say he must have been 70 years old when he was being tried because he then becomes 140 years old if you're staying in the double context. His three daughters are mentioned in an unusual way. We don't have time to get into that because I have no idea what that means. But they all have very interesting names and uh, they're beautiful to the point um, where it becomes like a byword to say, uh, a slogan to say as beautiful as Job's daughters. I think there's even societies called the daughters of Job. Wishful thinking. But here's the end. Job was blessed, but I'm still in my trial. I have no hope of ever getting rid of this trial. I like the words of Warren Worsby, who said, the final chapter does not teach that every trial will end in happily ever after. That's not what the book of Job teaches. What does it teach then? It teaches that God always writes the last chapter. That he's in sovereign control. And he's got the whole world in his hands. John Stott said it was reasonable for Job to trust the God who created all things and how much more reasonable it is for us to trust the God who loves us so much he sent his son to die on the cross for us. The cross doesn't solve the problems of suffering. It just puts them in their proper perspective. When you and I See the love of God revealed in the cross, then you and I can begin to handle our problems looking through the lens of the cross, through the life of Christ and the sovereignty of God. Bruce Larson used to, live in New York City. He's the editor of Leadership Magazine. And when friends would come to visit, he enjoyed taking them on a tour to two places. The first place was to take them to Fifth Avenue in New York City, down to the front of the RCA building. And if you've ever been there, there is this humongous statue of Atlas holding the world, right? He's very muscular, well proportioned, and yet Atlas is struggling with the world on his back. And Larson would say, that's one way to live. <laughs> Try to carry the world on your shoulders. Then he would take his guests across the street to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and behind one of the altars in that church is a statue of Jesus, a little boy, maybe eight or nine years old, frail, young, and he's holding the world in his hand. (laughs) And Larson would say, that's another way to live. You have a choice. You can carry the world and its problems on your back and struggle all your life. Or you can turn your world over to Jesus and let him carry your load. He loves you so much, he died on the cross. And any trial you're going through first is filtered through that love. And remember, he has a purpose. And he is God. Let's pray. Father, we bow. Literally with our heads, humbly with our hearts, we bow. I suppose in a sense, Lord, we we all should be on the floor To recognize indeed that you are God and we are humbled before you. The clarity that this book brings about a vision of God creates in us this virtue of humility. And brings into our heart a proper fear of God and reverence for you. Forgive us for our audacious questions and self-reliance and self-defense and may we despise ourselves in our sin and come humbly to the foot of the cross and find forgiveness in life and may we place our whole world into your hands in jesus name amen